Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm speaking with cinematographer Matthew J. Lloyd, CSC, about his work on Netflix and Marvel's The Defenders. The Defenders is a television event that brings together the heroes from Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist. These are Marvel's street-level heroes, the ones who use their powers to fight organized crime, corruption, and the forces of darkness at work in their communities. In this case, the boroughs and neighborhoods of New York City. It's a world that Lloyd knows fairly well, having gone behind the camera for the first season of Daredevil and the pilot for Jessica Jones. He recently joined American Cinematographer by phone for a wide-ranging conversation about the evolution of the Marvel television style, the challenges of shooting on location in New York City, and what it takes to build a heroic production team. Matt, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. As of this recording, there's still not a lot of information out there about The Defenders. Maybe you can start by telling us which episodes you shot out of the first two that have been released to the press. I was there for the whole run of eight. It was a shorter order than the previous incarnations of the Marvel Netflix experience because the arc seemed to work a little better, shorter, and obviously all that cast has other reoccurring programs and other things that they were responsible for. So it seemed to be in everyone's best interest to keep it to an eight-episode run. I will say that with a show of that size, the reality of a single cameraman achieving all of it is it's a tall order. So I had my longtime second unit DP, Jim McMillan, joining with us, and he's credited for episode three because you know with the crossboarding and with episode one and two being a block that ran a little longer he basically jumped in and took over on three ran with it and then i came back for we sort of tag teamed a sequence at the end between a stunt unit and a main unit and then throughout the remainder of the series really we were checkerboarding a lot of stuff and we would as these things get edited there's lists of additional stuff to do so that would come back and depending on who had done more work on a given episode, he would go do it or I would go do it, you know, just depending on who knew kind of what was going on at any given time. So while it is sort of considered a single cameraman show, it, it really was a, a joint effort between us and the tremendous camera crew filling out anywhere between four and six cameras at any given moment between the two units. This is a shorter than usual season, you say, by how many episodes? The normal Netflix order is 13. Was your production schedule also truncated? My understanding is that with the additional infrastructure required to manage a cast of that size and the complexity of logistics, I don't know that it was necessarily more padded. I mean, certainly the day count per episode probably went up from what I remember on Daredevil. And there was a lot of really big sequences in this show. It's a really exciting action-packed show. So you'll occasionally do, you know, reshoots and additional photography. So certainly if you were to factor that in, I would say that it was a, a pretty robust day count per episode. But obviously with a short order like that and with the cast, there is a lot of, you know, okay, we're doing this from the fifth episode and we're going to, in conjunction with this thing we're doing on the seventh episode, 
because of locations or cast availability or, or whatever it is. So you end up with a more movie style situation than you do with a sort of traditional shoot out one episode, move on to the next. And the longer runs are, you know, it's more challenging for the crew and stuff. People can get pretty worn down. So this felt a little bit more like a, like a movie schedule, I suppose. Do you keep standing sets for the scenes that you can't shoot out all at once? It's a little bit of both, I think. I mean, so locations department had a tall order on this job. I mean, it was just every script had a lot of really demanding spaces, both for production and just, like, creatively how to make it work. Certainly, if there was, like, a location that was extremely difficult to get into or out of, we would try to do as much work as we could, or if we knew that there was going to be a piece from a certain episode that might get a director in to do that, you know, one little chunk so that we wouldn't have to return. You know, you're physically lifting a production onto the 16th story of a building in Soho. Like, that's not a lot of fun. So we like to be able to, when possible, use our crystal ball and figure out, okay, well, this is coming down the line or that, you know, Marco was really good about knowing in the scripts, like, where this thing was going to go. So if there was an opportunity to get it, we would, and then, you know, occasionally you do have to go back or the scripts will change and that it'll make more sense to revisit a location that you've already been to, which thankfully the guys were fastidious note takers and very aware of what was in play. So putting it back together is never as difficult. You mentioned in a previous American cinematographer interview about your work on Daredevil that the executive producers at Netflix and Marvel wanted to create something outside the typical scope of broadcast television. What is the scope of typical broadcast TV, and how did you go beyond it? I think that what Marvel did really well early on with Daredevil and carried through, and it certainly applies to the Defenders, is that they just sort of said, look, like we really want to try to bring certainly the scope of some of the movie experience, but also like a more grounded, gritty feel for these things that just wasn't typical, I don't think. You know, going back to the first Daredevil, certainly I hadn't had a lot of interviews where that was the ask, um, you know, up until that point. So certainly I think the Defenders series really broadened a little bit, like it incorporated vibes from, you know, all of the programs and, and the idiosyncrasies of each storyline and, and what that meant visually. So it was more of a mosaic of things going on in terms of the creative and the visual but the app really was like, let's take this thing up a notch where each of the shows has several showpiece moments. Like, let's really try to find ways to make this thing the culmination of this ride that Marvel has taken the viewers on between all of the different shows. That's kind of what I was thinking on Daredevil and certainly it does apply to what was going on in this program. Of course, I've been gone, so, you know, a lot went on I wasn't necessarily aware of. And so when you get back and you sort of realize this is the, the shows have refined and the approaches have refined, there was a bit of a learning curve for me too, even though I had been there from the onset. Were you at all encouraged to make the show look more like a comic book? The funny thing about it was that weirdly now I'm actually far more aware of the uh, lineage of the comics and the graphic novels having since Daredevil basically just been doing superhero-related stuff, you know, different IPs and different studios. So I have slowly over the course of time absorbed a lot more than probably I had going into Daredevil because, you know, the reality was I just didn't grow up 
with that stuff the way a lot of people did. So there's certainly a learning curve. I mean, I don't know that any of the executives at Marvel were ever mandating looking at a particular comic or pulling directly from it. I think it's all about just trust in the material that they've created this world and the writing style is taken so much from the books that it gets there no matter what. And to say, oh, well, we should try to emulate or replicate this can sometimes be a lot tough because either you don't hit it or it's too much like a comic now and it doesn't have the grounded origin story quality that I think worked really well in Daredevil. So for sure, like Frank Miller's of the world in his time with, with the Daredevil character and Daredevil Yellow and a lot of these offshoots of the main brand really did help inform the look. Certainly on Daredevil, we were looking at those panels makes its way in there, you know, and I think the more you're around it, the more you become accustomed to that language and to how to appropriate the things that work really well. Who were your creative collaborators at the earliest conceptual stages? Well, Marco Ramirez was a writer on Daredevil and the showrunner on Defenders. So he and I have known each other a long time, and he's really this pacemaker for a lot of this stuff. And then inside of Marvel, the head of television, Jeff Loeb, who's lived and breathed Marvel his entire life is a huge voice in all of this and really has been a champion of these things. They really do try to set the tone early on. And then from there, usually it starts to run itself. You know, you kind of got a language, you know what you're doing and, and you can apply it to any circumstances that sort of come your way. And then occasionally there'll be some, you know, mythic moment that was in the books and that we have to really kind of look at exactly what we're doing because for the fans it, it matters a lot you know and you got to get those things right where does the collaboration with your director uh, sj clarkson begin well you know i mean with television you know these things come together very quickly like not like a movie where i'll prep it for a couple of months like i'm really only on a couple of weeks before we start shooting so you know it really depends i mean in sj's case she's such a consummate professional and visualist that she's done a ton of before I even walk in the door like there's a huge almost overwhelming library of references for each look of each character and where she wants to go from art direction to costume lighting references location stuff and then whether you know she really has an incredible eye and so her director's scout you know the directors go and scout weeks in advance of me being there so they will have seen and picked a good chunk of the stuff and then we go in and oh we had a question about this will this work will that work and, and we sort of refine it from there once i'm on and that's not to say that every director works that way i mean there are some that just sort of say look i'm gonna talk to actors and you tell me what we're gonna do and then there's some guys who know every single shot and kind of let the actors do their own thing some people that are really technical so it really depends on it's challenging and, and rewarding in a lot of senses because the process is always changing up. But it can also be hard on the crew because they sort of get in the groove and then someone else comes in and then they want to do things different. This show brings together the heroes of these other shows which exist in the same world, but each one still has its own distinctive look. What's more important for the Defenders? To maintain a distinction between the characters' environments or creating a completely new one? I think for the actors, that was the paramount importance was that none of them wanted to lose the essence of what they were doing in their shows. 
I think from a visual perspective, we probably didn't go nearly as extreme as we went with the Daredevil show look-wise, but that was the impetus. Marco was back. It was not a Daredevil-centric show, but it sort of felt like it was coming out of that world most organically from a visual standpoint. I mean, I think we did, it was a little less gritty, less of a handheld sort of vibe, but from a lighting perspective, we did a lot of those night looks and stuff that were sort of iconic from the Daredevil experience were, were brought back. Um, certainly it wasn't as dark a show, but uh, it just wasn't appropriate either. You know, there was a lot more, a lot more day scenes and a lot more kind of group scenes, and it was a little less brooding from a creative standpoint. So, you know, we altered it a bit. But the other shows didn't impact us visually in the sense that we weren't really, like, looking at it, other than certain technical things, like the Iron Fist as a visual element and that visual effects component of that rig and some of the mythology of how the guys use their powers. Like, that was always being referred to. Like, oh, and Luke Cage, he, you know, we already had him being a human shield, so how do we give a new take on that kind of keep it fresh and interesting for the fans? There are still these strong color cues that you can spot if you're looking for them, uh, like the red in Matt Murdock's scenes, the, the cool, desaturated look in Jessica Jones's. You have the golden hues of, of Luke Cage's Harlem and the shadowy world of Iron Fist. How much of this is accomplished in the lighting and camera work? Uh, and let's talk about lighting first and your collaboration with gaffer Joe Quick. The color palette or the integration of the chroma elements into the looks of each character was a 100% an S.J. Clarkson creation. She had, and, and I think rightfully so, like really sort of done a lot of looking into um, how in the beginning, you know, all these guys are separate. They're not a team yet. They haven't met. They, and so she really wanted to give a distinct tone to each character's world as they come out of it and into this group dynamic. She did a lot of visual research and a lot of pulls from other films and stuff and sort of finding ways that we could, without overdoing it, integrate like a certain visual cue into each of the worlds. But then as they meet up in later episodes, culminates into one fluid look, which a lot of times you go down the road of saying, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be great? And then you get to the third day of shooting, you're like, okay, well, there's a bit more. But um, some of them, it was harder. Um, you know, with, with Daredevil, it was always about, you know, reflections of red things or, or neon trim or, you know, a set piece that catches light in a particular way to sort of build in some of those red cues. With Luke Cage, it's easier to make stuff sort of bold and yellow and, and have it still seem sane versus, you know, lighting everything with heavy red key and going, okay, well, this doesn't look real or make any sense. You know, each of the shows, obviously, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and Luke Cage were done by, you know, different people in different circumstances. So it didn't seem to make sense to anybody to really go down the road of replicating too, too much of that. I mean, SJ had done, I think, the pilot of Jessica Jones, so obviously had some thoughts on her look. But, uh, you know, it was a little bit clean plate coming into it, and I think that that made sense to everybody, too. These characters uh, in their respective shows also inhabit very specific parts of New York. Uh, we've talked about Harlem. Uh, there's Hell's Kitchen, Downtown, Midtown. You know, there is a lot of thought paid to that. Like, Luke really is being shot in Harlem, and we do try to go to Hell's Kitchen. I mean, obviously, the logistics of doing that are challenging. We recreate a lot of stuff. Our stages are in Brooklyn. 
So there's a lot of building that goes on and matching facades and, you know, different things, but it is important to everybody that, that all of this stuff tracks and that it is real and it can create a headache, but in the end, it is worth it to try to, at least for the day exterior locations, we're really seeing the world. You want it to be authentic. What are the logistics for a show like this, especially in uh, a city like New York where getting around isn't so easy? Certainly in the first two, you're tracking four characters that aren't ever in the same room together. So you have these very short scenes that happen all over the place. So what ends up happening is you move sometimes multiple times per day. Okay, we'll run up here, we're going to get the the Iron Fist piece on the rooftop, and then we're going to do a Jessica Jones bar thing, and then we're going to run over here and get you know, Rosario coming off the bus with, with Mike or what, you know, whatever it is, you end up ping-ponging a lot. And this puts a tremendous amount of pressure, especially in a city like New York, which is not necessarily totally production friendly. Um, in fact, far from it on occasion. So the Teamsters really become the heroes of the day. Our captain, John Riggins and, and Mike O'Brien are seasoned Marvel transportation folk and they have worked for these guys the whole time and they just get it done. I mean, it's like you watch them move a production from the financial district to 125th street. And it's like, it doesn't skip a beat. Trucks are there unloaded, you know, and you just go in and you're never waiting. Like they're real New Yorkers. They know the deal and uh, they get it done. And whenever I think I'm having a tough day, I look over at one of those two as they land the mothership, you know, for the third time in a day getting ready for a 6 a.m. call on Long Island the next day and going like, okay, well, I, I definitely don't have it as bad. I also imagine you do a lot of pre-lighting. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the whole the whole thing is run by riggers, really. I tend to, on the technical side, you know, Joe and I will go and, and basically draw out a plan for every single space. We never walk in and just say, okay, what are we doing? I mean, it's it's all pretty much done before we get there and then we have a shooting package that kind of rolls with us that is basically all we need, you know, a couple of carts, but the riggers do uh, a tremendous amount of work for us ahead of time. You share a cinematography title credit with Jim McMillan, your second unit director of photography. What role does the second unit play on a production like this? You know, in Daredevil, it, it really is a heavy second unit show, meaning so much of the sequence, because he's a masked man and he's often fighting sort of ND villains, huge amount of it falls on the stunt department in the second unit to, to get the work done. I mean, we'll, we would go in and do sort of a night of hero stuff of Charlie Cox and hero stuff of, you know, whoever the villain was in, in any instance. And then there could be sometimes two or three days of additional photography, which is just maintaining a look that's set and then the stunt guys go and they really do all of their gags, all their pulls and Jimmy would be there shooting it, cleaning all that stuff up and really spending the time necessary, which you don't have when you have actors on the clock and you have to turn the company around. You really can't spend the time doing the big wire pulls and the big gags and the breakaway stuff and all the things that sort of make those sequences more dynamic. But in the, in the instance of defenders, like it wasn't really a big quote-unquote second unit show, meaning that, you know, all those guys are, are unmasked and in every scene. So, you know, and they do have great doubles, but it's not like you could go and shoot two nights in a row of doubles. Um, you always kind of needed to have the actors in place. So really what it turned into was just a tandem shoot where it was, you know, you know, Jimmy would be shooting two to four days a week 
along with us, which is good for production in some sense because I think it helps cost um, a little bit. They get a little more mileage, but logistically super complex to make all that work and to crew both units effectively and certainly could not have done it without Jim. And uh, and it was a smart play for production, I think, too, because we really got an awful lot done in a short amount of time. What's in your camera and lens package? Uh, SJ had used a set of vintage lenses from Panavision that she really liked on Jessica Jones. So for the first two episodes, we started with that set. Once the show got up and running, I just didn't have any choice but to switch back to a more modern, um, reliable uh, lens set. So we went back to Master Primes, which is what we used on Daredevil. Frankly, the the visual was not, you know, we shot tests and really at the, at the stop we were at, it just didn't, um, it didn't impact the show really to make the switch and certainly made life far, far easier for the focus pullers and for Panavision in general, you know, as our, as our camera house, they were really, you know, in a, in a tough spot trying to supply all this stuff and make it all work. And, And with the vintage glass, you're all, you know, constantly, sending stuff back or getting, you know, things recalibrated or halfway through the day, if it gets cold, all of a sudden all the markings are wrong. I mean, I know it's popular to use that stuff now, but it it does not make life easy for focus pullers and for camera houses. We were going to work at the level that was expected. We had to make a change. You've said that SJ's approach to directing is very cinematic. And these first two episodes really show that, especially in the way the camera moves. Uh, it's incredibly dynamic, and you know we could talk about the technical aspects of that. Uh, but first, let's talk about your collaboration with a camera op, Steve Constantino. Steve and SJ had done, I think, an episode of Vinyl together, and you know she was a big fan of his. Uh, you know I've known him uh, and his work for a long time, so uh, it wasn't a stretch for all of us to get together and try to make something interesting. You know she had certain kind of hero moments for him plotted out and really we tried to, you know, I, th- I think the one great thing about Steve is that it's never steady cam for steady cam's sake. It's always like, all right, what's the shot? Is this the correct tool? So there was a lot of discipline there, uh, which you don't often get in a TV environment. You know, much of the time you just show up, the operator show up for the first time, they're looking at it, they're like, okay, well, uh, okay, what do you want to do? Okay, I guess maybe I can make that work. And uh, you know, they start to suggest things that don't work for the director, and then the whole thing can really kind of unravel pretty quickly. So I think um, Steve and John Beatty, who actually was, was B-camera, but also Steadicam, um, because they had so much work with Jim that we needed basically two A-camera Steadicam guys. So you really get a lot of support and advice because they, they do contribute a tremendous amount. And on the technical side of things, uh, just based on the way the camera flies around, there's probably a lot of complex rigging and mounting going on there as well. Yeah, a tremendous amount of technocrane work, usually performed by the legendary Stuart Allen, technocrane operator to the stars here in New York. Panavision remote supplied our cranes, and a lot of uh, 30-foot Luma, a lot of 50-foot super techno work. Libra heads predominantly were the head of choice for all that stuff. We talked about letting in camera work, but what about post? How does the image make its way from the set to the color grade? Well, I think we really do live in a in a rather complex time when it comes to the role of cameramen in the world and color work 
info and the expectations that people have for what they're seeing on the day versus what they get in dailies versus what can be achieved in the DI. You know, the saying of, oh, we'll just fix it in the DI was always a big myth for VPs. And, you know, now the reality is the tools are so strong that that really is the case on a lot of levels. Like, the less that we're in the room for these finishes, the more things can go any direction really now with these cameras operating the way they are and the decision-making that goes into it, you know, it, it really is crucial to be at the finishing step, especially in, in, in television work. It's, it's obviously different in movies because the volume of material is, is often much less. And so the amount of time you can spend kind of in the day-to-day color process is greater. I'm also very fortunate to have worked with incredible DITs and dailies colorists all over the world, really. And so wherever I am, I tend to have really good people in the tent. And as a result, I don't spend a lot of time, as a lot of people do, sitting next to a DIT in a dark tent, coloring stuff as we go. And in fact, on Defenders, I opted to not employ a DIT at all, just because I felt like the complexity of the look that SJ was after was going to result in us really being bogged down coloring almost every shot on the day because I I had a sense that people were going to want to see a more maximized sense of that look than probably was going to end up in the, in the, in the final work. So we basically just did it all in camera. It was a one let show. Steph Sonnenfeld at company three, who I've known for a very long time has, always been very good with providing LUTs, and in this case, one LUT, a log-to-lin conversion for the red weapon. And that was basically what we used. It had a nice filmic curve. It pulled a little bit of that snappiness out of the color and gave it the more cinematic gamma. You know, the blacks were up a little bit. You could really get a nice, rich image out of the thing just running right to the monitors. And so Joe Quirk and I from a lighting perspective, we're really just operating on, okay, this is the neg, like, shoot for this, and we'll be okay. We had Drew Geary, who's done a ton of my stuff doing the early stages at the dailies, and Kevin Kraut as well at Deluxe uh, New York, which is now just Company 3, I guess. So Kevin really bared the brunt of the daily workflow, and, and you know, normally... In a movie environment, I'm grading stills, sending stills every day, you know, literally like out of my laptop with a corrected display, emailing those guys every day. But because of the complexity of Marvel security and all this sort of stuff, I opted to just literally, I would just shoot text notes to these guys and they do tremendous, tremendous work. So you're always sort of dealing with that. And then on the finishing end, Tony DiAmore at Encore Hollywood has done, you know, he did all the Daredevil stuff. I did Fargo with him, the pilot or the first three episodes of that show and he went on to do the rest of it. So he, you know, he and I have worked together for a long, long time. Our rapport is such that he really runs with it at this point and knows the sensibility enough that, that it really is never very far off the mark. It looks like you roll with a lot of the same crew from job to job. How important is it for you to maintain a regular crew and what qualities do you look for in a collaborator? Well, I think that, you know, modern motion picture photography just requires an adaptability. Like, the demand on us is just so high. You know, you just have to be able to roll with it. You have to be adaptable. You know, Joe, for instance, as a gaffer, who's 
about as intellectual as they come and can really sort of look at a situation, see what's going on, deal with production in an intelligent way and track choices. And he's so aware of why decisions are being made. So that's really what you need, especially in, in production situations like, you know, sort of New York episodic. Before you mentioned translating these mythic moments from the comics, what mythic moments from the Defenders stand out for you? You know, the, uh, it, it is sort of, it's hard to pinpoint the exact moments for me anyway. The thing that got me was sort of the elegance and the thought that went into Sigourney Weaver's character and the heightened sense of uh, villains that you could see was what I would always say, that we took the shadowy figures and brought them into this ivory tower and, and everything was heightened. And the minute I started seeing that stuff playing out, and I just sort of thought like, wow, this was not what I would have done instinctively. You're not hiding anything. You're putting it all on the table. And so that was like the moment where I sort of felt like, okay, this is going to work. Having been a part of the Netflix Marvel project from its beginnings really until now, uh, how has your approach or attitude towards photographing these shows evolved over time? Well, I think that Daredevil certainly required a certain amount of resilience and Teflon exterior because the ask from Stephen Benight, who was the showrunner on that program, really wanted to go there in terms of darkness, in terms of tone. And there was a lot of heat early on in the Daredevil days where people were just going like, are we sure that this is, shouldn't it be more like X, Y, or Z? And there was less of that in the Defender scenario where, you know, the shows had done well. So there was more freedom to do things like color palette and unconventional coverage. There was a lot less of what trepidation, certainly. So whenever you're coming back, and I think it's the same in a movie environment too, you know, whenever you're coming back to a sequel of something, you know that there's less pressure and, and, and more focus on the quality of the decision-making, which is really what all of this is about. That was cinematographer Matthew J. Lloyd talking about his work on the Netflix and Marvel TV series, The Defenders. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and interviews on the web at ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.